Jesus is better. So let's get into it. Last month, Jenny and I watched a movie on Netflix called The Burial. You got to see it. It's Tommy Lee Jones and Jamie Foxx. It's the real life story of Jerry O'Keefe, who owned about a, a one funeral home with seven different locations in and around Biloxi, Mississippi. Jerry O'Keefe fell on hard times in the 1990s and wanted to sell one of his locations to the big multinational conglomerate, the Lowen Group. But the Lowen Group didn't honor the contract. The Lowen Group decided to wait and to see if Jerry O'Keefe would go into bankruptcy so they could buy the other six funeral homes at a discount price. Well, Jerry sued. The actual damages that he suffered was around $8 million. When it when it came to trial, some of the practices of the Lowen Funeral Group came to light. For example, if you were a white person with some money in Biloxi, Mississippi, that casket would cost you $700. If you were a black man from one of the poor parts of Biloxi, Mississippi, that same casket would cost you $2,700. The jury was mad. And when the jury finally awarded the verdict, they awarded Jerry O'Keefe $100 million plus $400 million in damages. Okay? Boom. It bankrupted the Lowen Group. Okay? You know what they say, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And it's not just funeral homes. It's all over sports. One of... Uh, the big famous stories from my home state of Indiana is the Milan High School basketball team. They're the real life people behind the TV or behind the movie Hoosiers. Okay, this little under uh, uh, underdeveloped, all white, lanky, rural high school team goes on to defeat the big team south of Chicago, all around Indianapolis, and they become state champions. It happened again in 1980. If you're from Canada or you're from Russia and you look at what the United States does, you say to yourself, they don't play hockey. They just dress and get on the ice. Americans don't play hockey. But in 1980, the American hockey team won the gold in Olympics for hockey, stunned the world. And if that wasn't enough, 2007, remember the Patriots, 18-0, and they got thumped in the Super Bowl, one of the real Super Bowls <laughs> that we had. And it was a surprise. They have a, they have a name for these kind of stories in sports. They're called Cinderella stories. And it's based off of the story of Cinderella. <laughs> Cinderella, of course, uh, her father dies and she's left with her evil stepmother and two stepsisters who are cruel and depraved and they make Cinderella do all the work but the prince announces a ball and a fairy godmother shows up and Cinderella gets a gown and a coach and when she shows up at the ball the prince says wow she's amazing right Cinderella ends up marrying the prince and wins out over her evil stepmother and stepsisters. And of course, the story of Cinderella is based on a story in the Bible. Have any guess what it might be? David and Goliath. 
the underdog wins. The guy that you don't think is going to win, wins. David and Goliath. In this corner, Goliath, six foot nine or nine foot six, depending upon you how you read the Hebrew text. Tall, fierce, heavily armored, a skilled warrior, much, much bigger than King Saul, who's head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel. And in the other corner, David, the runt of the family, a shepherd, a lanky teenager who's not even 20 years old, the minimum age you had to be to serve in the Israelite army. Who wins? Who wins? David. And there are countless sermons on this stuff like the bigger they are, the harder they fall. There's always hope for the underdog. Never stop believing in yourself. If you trust and have courage, you too can slay the giants in your life, the career giants, the financial giants. You are, after all, more than a conqueror. Uh, I can remember a sermon from Chuck Swindoll in the 1980s called Five Smooth Stones. And it was a sermon for people graduating high school and college. And these were the five principles that would allow you to go out and conquer life. I've preached sermons like this myself. Guilty. <laughs> Guilty. But if the Bible is one story told in 66 books, and it has, like all stories, a protagonist, a plot, conflict, and resolution, who's the protagonist? Who's the hero of the story of the Bible? Who's the hero? Jesus, God. Jesus is the hero, okay? Jesus is the hero, which means that Jesus is the true and better David. So as you might suspect, I'm going to be in 1 Samuel today. So if you brought a Bible, you can crack that open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. All of this takes place in the valley of Elah, with the Israelites up one slope and the Philistines up the other slope. And in the middle is this valley. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 8, it says this, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? I'm the Philistine champion, but you're only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I'm Goliath. Here I come. Okay? And the Israelites are terrified. They're terrified. David's primary role in this account is to go back and forth between home and the battlefield. So at home, he's tending sheep. And then he goes to the battlefield to provide food for his brothers who are in the Israelite army. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 11. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Once David gets there, though, his older brother verbalizes what they think of him. When David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? I know you brothers and sisters never had this kind of stuff going up in your homes. But in the Bible, poor David, who's the youngest of the family, is tormented by all his older brothers and told that he's nobody. Shut up. Don't say anything. Stay out and tending the sheep. Who do you think you are anyway? You're nobody, right? 
What about those few sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of, says Eliab? I know about your pride and descent. You just want to see the battle. That's why you're here. Does this sound like a typical older brother to you? <laughs> the older brothers in the congregation today are like, mm. <laughs> okay, okay. Yes, that's exactly what older brothers do. And it's exactly the, the same perspective from David and Eliab's father, Jesse. Two chapters earlier, the prophet Samuel comes to their town and he's going to anoint the new king of Israel. And he asks to see all of Jesse's sons. And Jesse brings out all of the boys except, guess who? David. He leaves David out into the fields because as far as Jesse's concerned, David's a nobody. He's a shepherd boy. If ever there's going to be a king, it's not going to be David. And of course, we get this, uh, we're, we're told that in that passage in the, in the Bible, in 1 Samuel, we're told God looks on the inside, but we tend to look on the outside. So things take a turn, and that's 1 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 17, verse 26. David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? David sees the battlefield from a different perspective. When he looks out into the battlefield, he sees what everyone else misses. God. He sees God. This is God's people. This is God's battle. If the battle's going to be won, who's going to actually win the battle? God. And David sees that if he has a role, it's just to be used by God. And so there's this interchange. David is taken to the king, and uh, the king offers uh, David his armor. And David says, uh, Saul says to David, there's no way you can fight this Philistine and win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But there's more going on here that I want to draw out, that maybe in all the years you've sat in church that maybe you've missed. I did. I sat in church for years and I missed this. In 1 Samuel chapter uh, 17, uh, verse 5, we're told that Goliath wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. And there's some weird things going on in the, I know, it's a lot, man. <laughs> it's a lot. And we're told there's a couple of Hebrew words that, that are listed here that are strange. And the first one is that, uh, the first one is that it's uh, an unusual word for armor. And it's, it's the same, it's a similar word for the Hebrew word for serpent. So what other animals have scales? Fish have scales, reptiles have sna scales, snakes have scales. So the scale imagery here is you're supposed to pick up on the fact that Goliath is this snake-like creature who is defying God. Where else in the Bible have we seen a snake-like creature? Hmm. Genesis, <laughs> right? Okay. Okay. So David is taking on the giant snake. And David points to the true and better David who also takes on a snake. And that person is Jesus, right? 
So here's the problem though, for, for those of us. Um, we think that in order to face the Goliaths in our lives, that we need to use the weapons of Goliath. So what plays out on the battlefield, the Israelites are there, they're facing Goliath. You know the story. Does David slay Goliath with a, with a sword and spear and javelin and all that stuff? No. What does David use? A stone from a slingshot he uses as a shepherd. Okay? And so everybody looking at the battle and looking at the enemy and looking at Goliath thinks to themselves, we need someone who's really big, who's really strong, who's a capable warrior, who has all the right equipment and training, who's going to be bigger, badder, and stronger than Goliath so he can take Goliath down and win and carry the day. Is that how God wins battles? No. God doesn't win battles by being stronger and using the weapons of Goliath. We see that with Jesus. How does Jesus defeat the snake? How does Jesus defeat Satan? Does he do it by saying to the disciples, look, we're going to take Israel back for God, and here's what we're going to do. You're all going to get swords, <laughs> and tonight we're going to go take the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, and from there, we're going to kick these Roman butt all the way back to the boot of Sicily. Like, they're leaving, they're leaving Israel and Palestine. Ooh, who's with me? Grab your torches. Gra no. How does Jesus defeat Satan? By dying on a cross, the least likely thing you would suspect. Thank goodness he doesn't stay dead, okay? So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here. When David faces Goliath, David doesn't do it in his own strength, but in the name of the Lord Almighty. So David and Goliath foreshadow, they point to the ultimate triumph of Jesus over the serpent on the cross. And just like Genesis, which starts with a battle between God's people and the servant, it comes up again in Revelation. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. And then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20.10. Here's what I want to remind you, O Generations Community Church, today. You and I cannot fight the enemies of God with the weapons of Goliath. You and I cannot fight the enemies of God with the weapons of Goliath. Just like the Israelites were tempted to look for a Saul to lead us. We're tempted to put on the armor and don the sword and the helmet and to do what the Philistines do to win. But that's not how God wins battles. That's not how God does battle. And just like Peter, we're tempted to rebuke Jesus when Jesus says, I must go to the cross and suffer and die. And Peter's like, no, no, <laughs> that's not how this is going to play out, right? So uh, there's this verse in the Bible, God will give you the desires of your heart. And a lot of my health and wealth friends will use that phrase to say, if you just pray and believe, like God will give you what's on your heart. And without unpacking the verse entirely, 
your curmudgeon pastor believes that that's true only in a different way. Um, God will give you often the desires of your heart so that you get to this point of loss and utter desolation where you realize that what you wanted wasn't God, but this other thing so that you will repent and actually turn to God. We see it play out in the choice of Saul, the king. The Israelites want what? A king, because they want to be like what? All the other nations. And Samuel, the prophet, is fuming mad about this and has this conversation with God. And God basically says to Samuel, the prophet, look, they're rejecting me. Don't, don't get all upset about this. I'll go and anoint, go give them a king. <laughs> and what does the king do? The king taxes them. The king takes their men into service in the army. The king builds a big palace for himself. The king does what kings do. When God's king, God doesn't treat them that way. <laughs> okay? So Jesus is the true and better David which is why when God becomes human, he's born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So let me ask a couple of questions. The first question is, where have you turned for help or deliverance recently? Where have you turned for help and deliverance recently? And then secondly, what if God is enough? What if God is all you need? So I always like to make this practical if I can. And the first way to kind of unpack this is it's not about you. It's not about me. And that's okay. In fact, that's really good news. It's really good news that God is the hero. It's really good news that Jesus is the hero. Come on, you have friends and coworkers and extended family members who make everything about them. Wham, wham, wham. <laughs> you do. You got these people in your life. Um, if God is the hero, if God saves the day, that takes the pressure of, uh, off of us. I don't know how many of you woke up this morning, jumped into your ice bath, looked into the mirror, and said your affirmation statements, and you were like, all right, I'm ready to slay some giants. Who's with me? Come on, family. Like, you can do that. How many of you woke up this morning and thought, I really don't want to get out of bed? <laughs> okay. Human nature, it's right there, <laughs> okay? That's where we all tend to camp out, okay? Uh, so I love the way my youngest daughter puts it. She has created a place in her room that she calls her hidey hole. <laughs> and I'm like, do you need to be in your hidey hole? <laughs> yes, dad, okay. We're not meant to be the hero of the story. Let me explain it this way. When you have a friend who's got really big news, uh, they've gotten engaged, uh, they've gotten the job offer they've always wanted to have, the house offer came through and was accepted, big news, or it could be big news that's bad. They've gotten a cancer diagnosis, somebody really important to them has died, and they're talking to you with this big news. In that moment, does your anxiety go up or down? For most of us, it tends to go down because instead of focusing on ourselves, how am I coming across? Do they like me? Da, 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 da. All of a sudden, our focus is now on them and where they are, and the overall anxiety drops a notch or two. Okay? Again, we're not meant to be the hero of the story. 
and that's good news. Uh, in Jesus Christ, we don't have to be afraid of death. Death sucks. Death sucks. I hate death. Every year I get another year added to my life, I think death is bad. Zero stars out of five. Would not recommend. Two thumbs down. Death sucks. I had my last conversation with Bob Martin before Thanksgiving, and I didn't realize it was going to be my last conversation, and I was a little grumpy about it. But it's only my last conversation here. It's not my last conversation. See, Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead on the third day. And so I don't have to be afraid of death the way I would if he stayed in that tomb. In Jesus Christ, I don't have to be afraid of the future flying out of control. Um, if I lose my job, if my parents get divorced, if I flunk a class, if my bank account goes belly up, it's not the end of the world. The end of the world is losing my relationship with God. That's the end of the world. Um, I like the way Mike Lesage would explain this to me in simple terms in the early days of Generations Community Church. Remember what you would say all the time, I've read the end of the book, <laughs> and who wins? God wins. And we're on God's side, we win. God wins. And lastly, in Jesus Christ, I don't have to be afraid of the disapproval of others. As a young man and as a young pastor, I retched over what people thought of me constantly. If I was well-liked, I was okay. If somebody, you know, didn't like me or a decision I made, I felt like it was the end of the world. Um, and I finally figured out that the only person whose approval really matters to me is Jesus. And I have that approval. I can't earn it. It's given to me. It is unshakable. It is certain. It is secure. It is safe. <laughs> it's unshakable. And, and Jesus knows what it is to be rejected, despised, hated, and scorned, and yet he is utterly and completely loyal. I can walk away from him, but he's not going to walk away from me. Okay? We have this tendency, because we're Americans, to cast ourselves in the role of a hero. And I just want to suggest to you today that it's good news that God is the hero. It's good news that God is the hero. Um, and this story of David and David and Goliath, David just points to Jesus. So I just want to unpack just three ways that David points to Jesus. David was a king. And David did what kings do. He built himself the biggest house in all of Jerusalem. When David died, there wasn't a bigger, more beautiful thing that existed in all of Israel other than his palace. Not even God had a temple yet. David, when he should have been in battle, was on the roof and he saw this woman on another roof and had her brought to his room, made love to her. She got pregnant. And then David decided, I'm going to have her husband come home so that at least everybody thinks it's his kid and he wouldn't. He wouldn't come into the house. He wouldn't sleep with her. And so David had that man killed. David. <laughs> David did that as king. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. Has Jesus taken anything from anybody in a mean, despicable way? No. 
Jesus hasn't wronged anyone, period. He is a better king. Uh, David was a shepherd, tended sheep. Um, and again, when the prophet of God confronts David about what he's done in sleeping with Bathsheba and then having Bathsheba's husband killed tells a story about a lamb <laughs> to amplify the point that what David has done is wrong. Jesus is the good shepherd who does what? Lays down his life for his sheep. And then lastly, David's a deliverer. So one of the things that King David does for Israel is he rallies all of Israel together. They finish conquering the the promised land, and there's a kingdom. And it lasts through David's son. And then when it gets to David's grandson, there's now two kingdoms. And then they're getting attacked, and then the kingdoms are shrinking, and then there's fighting. David's deliverance, so to speak, didn't last very long at all. Jesus is also a deliverer. And he's coming back to claim his rightful place as king. And he will wipe away every tear and write what is wrong. Jesus is a better deliverer. So I just wanted to unpack this for us at Christmas time because all of these things get woven together. And I just wanted to get you a glimpse that Jesus is a better David. And that's really good news. Whew. Takes the pressure off of me. I hope it takes the pressure off of you. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough.